hello there, and welcome back to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole, and you can take that to the bank. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other stuff that doesn't necessarily fit well into the podcast. Also, please go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep everybody busy. You can find that at facebook.com slash ow, how good it is pod. Hey, here's a cool trivia question for ye. Believe it or not, Hungry Heart was Bruce Springsteen's first top 10 single, peaked at number 5 on the Billboard Hot 100. But Springsteen didn't write the song for himself. What band did he write Hungry Heart for? I'll have the answer as usual at the end of the show. So Indian Reservation, which is subtitled in parentheses as the Lament of the Cherokee Indian, has two versions which hit the charts. Uh, and judging by the posts that I see on the internets about it, every version has its own set of fans that swear theirs is the better version. But did you know that they're both covers? Oh, yes, indeed. The song was written by John D. Loudermilk. Now, Loudermilk was a singer-songwriter who usually recorded as Johnny D. He's the guy who wrote a few big hits, including Ebony Eyes for the Everly Brothers, uh, Tobacco Road for the Nashville Teens, uh, and Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye, which was a hit for the casinos, and then Eddie Arnold. But the song that put him on the map in the first place was this one, Sitting in the Balcony, which was Eddie Cochran's first big hit. Now, where Loudermilk got the inspiration for Indian Reservation is still unclear, but there's a story out there that's worth repeating just because it's so weird. Loudermilk was being interviewed by a Las Vegas radio station about the song's origin, and he made up a story on the spot. In this story, he was driving through a blizzard when his car was finally snowed in. A small band of Cherokee Indians led by Chief Bloody Beartooth led him to safety, and as a means of thanking them, he wrote this song. Got all that? Good. Now forget it, because it's entirely a lie. But the problem is the researchers at American Top 40 caught wind of that story, and they called Loudermilk, and it turned out to be an unfortunate time to call Loudermilk because he changed the story again, saying he had been kidnapped by some Cherokees during a snowstorm, and he talked them out of killing him by promising to write a song about their plight. Well, the researchers bought the story, and they wrote it into a show script, and so Casey Kasem told that story on his show. And instead of a regional audience getting a nonsense tale, well, now a national audience had an even more bizarre story. So there are still plenty of people who have heard the Blizzard story and accepted it as truth, and every once in a while you're going to hear it again when that AT40 show is repeated on an oldies radio station or on Sirius XM. In fact, I heard it a few months ago on Sirius, and I thought, well, I can make that the focus of the show. And then I did some research and I got the truth. Loudermilk also went on to tell the false story that he had later been awarded something called the First Medal of the Cherokee Nation, not because of the song, but because of his blood. He said that his great-great-grandparents, Homer and Matilda Loudermilk, were listed on the Dawes Rolls. Now, not to get too deeply into the woods here, but the Dawes Rolls was a document that the U.S. government set up in 1893 that forced members of the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Creek, the Chickasaw, and the Seminole tribes to register and thereby allow them to live on lands allotted to those tribes. I guess they did this because, I don't know, the Trail of Tears just wasn't painful enough. At any rate, the story is false, and incidentally, because of the Dawes Rolls, the Cherokee lands 
aren't known as reservations. They took the whole Cherokee Nation and put us on this reservation. Indian Reservation was first recorded by a musician named Marvin Rainwater, who was part Cherokee. Uh, in fact, he would wear uh, Native American-themed uh, outfits when he performed on stage. Rainwater released the song in 1959 under the title The Pale-Faced Indian, and while he did have a few hits in the 50s, including another Louder Milk tune, this wasn't one of them. In fact, it pretty much went down without creating any ripples. They're using now just for a show. So let's move forward into the 1960s and a British band called The Sorrows. The Sorrows first got together in Coventry, uh, Warwickshire, England in 1963, and their lead guitarist who assembled the band was named Pip Witcher, because of course he was. The lead singer in the band was Don Farden, and the so this song, a cover of Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, was their first single, which believe it or not was recorded in their producer's bathroom. But it wasn't very long before they moved away from that sound and into a more aggressive R&B sound, which was usually known as Freak Beat. This track is called I Don't Wanna Be Free, and it's from their 1965 debut album called Take a Heart. So the Sorrows, they scored a few minor hits in the UK, but after a while, Don Farden and bass player Phil Packham left the group. The uh, Sorrows continued on for several years with moderate success, especially on the European continent. Farden went on uh, to a solo career, and he also did okay, but his first hit in 1968 turned out to be his biggest. Farden's version of Indian Reservation went to number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. and uh, did even better in the U.K. and Australia, making it into the top five. Uh, Farden had a couple of other minor hits on both sides of the Atlantic, and in 2011, he and Phil Packham, the bass player who left when he did, they got back together for live performances as the Sorrows with a new lineup in the band. But certainly the uh, most commercially successful version of the song is the 1971 release by Paul Revere and the Raiders. This one went to the top of the charts for one week in July of that year after getting stuck at number two behind Carole King's double-A single, It's Too Late and I Feel the Earth Move, for three weeks. Incidentally, that's not the Raiders' usual lead singer, Mark Lindsay. It was Lindsay's idea to record the song, and he produced the record, but that's guitarist Freddie Weller doing the vocals. Took away our native 
Now, structurally, the song is in a minor key, which gives it that melancholy feel. But the other thing that carries the overall feel, I think, is the beat, which is punctuated by the drums and the bass, and which is essentially in a double time against the melody. So they're always stressing each other as they still manage to pull you along. And of course, there are some subtle differences in the lyrics from version to version. For instance, Rainwater's version does stuff in a different order, and it doesn't have that Cherokee people chorus, but there is a Haya Haya Ho chant uh, instead of the chorus, along with backup singers doing a slightly different chant. In addition, there's a line about a papoose that's missing from the other two. Now, Farden's version has a line about a teepee that's missing from the Raiders' version, and this kind of makes sense since Cherokees neither lived in teepees, they live in longhouses, nor do they use the word papoose, which comes from the Narragansett tribe, but somehow got broadened into meaning any non-white baby, and in that context, well, it's pretty offensive. And then from an instrumental standpoint, Rainwater's version is acoustic with strings and lots of backup singers. Uh, Farden, he brings in a horn section and percussion, and the Raiders, of course, have that keyboard which really stands out, especially in the opening and the closing of the song. Speaking of which, does that coda sound familiar? People have suggested that it sounds a lot like the ending to Janice Ian's Society Child. Listen to the Raiders' ending of the song. Let's listen to Janice What do you think? Do they sound similar? I think they sound nearly identical, although they are different in length. But is it plagiarism? Well, not really. In both cases, the organ was provided by Artie Butler. So it's more like him recycling a bit that worked previously. And now it's time to answer this week's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about the band for which Bruce Springsteen originally wrote the song Hungry Heart. Believe it or not, Ripley, the boss wrote that tune for the Ramones at the request of Joey Ramone. Fortunately for Bruce, his producer and manager, John Landau, talked him out of giving it to them, and he recorded it himself instead. And so far as I know, the Ramones never recorded a cover of the song. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. Listen, I don't ask for this often, but I would absolutely appreciate if you would leave a review uh, where, on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. It does have an effect on other people's ability to find the show, and frankly, it warms my heart to see what you folks have written. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow the show on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod, or... You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Next time, we're going to find out how good it is to learn some quick trivia bits about a bunch of your favorite Christmas songs. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for listing How Good It Is as a featured show. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Next time.